You're listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Otoje Abbott, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you. I know there's been a lot of discussions uh, surrounding Stonewall, the movie that's directed yeah. by Roland Emmerich, that's, uh, that's coming out later this month. Um, yeah. You know, let's go ahead and tackle the controversial discussions that's been surrounding the movie. The yes. first trailer was issued, and a lot of people felt like there were significant people who were involved in Stonewall back in 1969, you know, the riot that led to the gay movement. They felt that yeah. their voices were, were not represented. Um, what do you, how do you feel about, you know, those, those types of statements and saying that this, this movie just by looking at that initial trailer was not representative of the LGBTQ uh, history uh, movement, you know, the movement Stonewall. Well, I was very surprised by all the initial reactions that the trailer has given people and being a part of the film, filming it, being a part of what I was considered to be a reenactment, um, something that history we're going to portray. I was very, very surprised that people thought, my character Marshall wasn't in it. They thought other people, other people of color, were not in it as well. And I just wish people just gave it a chance instead of jumping right away to a trailer. And the idea that they started to have petitions to boycott the film—it was really hurtful because it was a film that was a label for love for Roland, a label for love for John Robin Bates, and for a lot of unknown actors in the film, including myself, where something we're supposed to celebrate and be prideful for. People wanted to take that away from us. So I was very, very surprised by that. And I could understand the idea of what they thought from the trailer, but I also was a part of the film. I am, I did portray the character of Marsha and I'm in the film and I was very surprised that people couldn't give that a chance. So the second trailer that we've seen that's just been released actually has you uh, yes. in it in which, um, you know, you again, you play Marsha Pay It No Mind Johnson, uh, hey. who many believe, you know, started the riot or, you know, obviously had a significant hand in Stonewall in actually yeah. happening. Um, so does Marsha have a big role in the film and also, you know, in, in kind of like you filling in those big shoes, right, <laughs> having to play this character who uh, those, those people, big people those big heels. Those big heels, exactly. Uh, you know, tell us kind of um, what that experience was like and in, in, in what you felt throughout the film in your role, because obviously we haven't seen the film. No, no, of course, of course. And once you do see it, Michelle and everyone else, you would enjoy it, I guarantee that. Um, I mean, having the opportunity to play someone like Marsha P. Johnson, an immense icon, and yes, in the LGBT community, but also she should be an icon in the world, more so than another community. And I think after this film and what the criticism has brought is the opportunity for Marsha to almost expand different communities, also have to have people Google Marsha and see what she's all about. So while doing my research for this film, I, I really felt that I had big shoes or heels or boots to fill. And I definitely, I definitely had senses of, oh my gosh, what am I doing? This, 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 is, this is a big task. But as an actor, you work hard, you trust yourself, trust your gut. There's a lot of comparisons where, you know, Marsha being a black person in the 60s as well, I can definitely relate to some injustice, inequality, and, and put that on top of how uh, she was a transgendered woman 
there's so much more layers to her as a person and as a human being on this earth. And it was an absolute honor to play Marsha. It was an absolute honor to go deeper and also express myself and see some feminine qualities that I do have in myself because, you know, growing up in New York City, walking around the hustle and bustle, we never really get to um, dig deep. And Marsha really gave me the opportunity to, to do that. So do you feel that uh, you did a, a great, wonderful job playing Marsha? And, and do you feel that her, her role was portrayed correctly um, in the film? I think I did the best I can. I, I mean, it's up to it's up for people to decide that or not. But again, as an actor, I did the best I can and treated the role with a lot of care and respect. And I think her role is very significant in this film. The film the film portrays sometime in Indiana and sometime in New York City. And in New York City, Marsha is a part of the gang that Danny, played by Jeremy Irvine, is a part of a part of a gang and Marsha is in and out of that gang as well. So she's very involved in the riots. She's very involved in the film and she's there. I mean, literally, I was I was <laughs> it's so funny. People think, are you in this film? Are you not? I'm like, I'm there. Yes, I, I've spent a lot of these film in this film. And I thought at first it was going to be a big reveal for Marsha because so many people want to see her. So you kind of, you know, almost, you know, you almost give them what they want last. And I guess that's what's happening now. And it couldn't be a better time. To, to reveal Marsha P. Johnson to the world that does not know her. Because a lot of people do know her and they're aware of her, but the people that do not, they're reading about her and they're, and they're looking forward to seeing her in a film. And, and also that was my idea when, when I accepted the role is that she's a real life person and I talked to people, did research, and I wanted, I wanted some people who knew Marsha to really go to the theater, watch this film Stonewall and have that two hours and 10 minutes to realize, wow, Marsha is still alive in this film. And I hope I was able to portray that. Let's talk about uh, you very quickly. Uh, you know, you talked, um, you said something earlier about, you know, some, this, this film gave an incredible opportunity for unknown actors. Um, how did you get involved in the project? Oh, well, uh, I, you know, as, as actors, we are somewhat aware of what roles are out there, what, Films are happening, and I came across a breakdown that I saw at Stonewall. I was aware of Stonewall, but not the depth of which I know now. And I saw directed by Roland Emmerich, and I saw written by John Robin Bates, who I'm an immense fan of from his plays and also his TV show Brothers and Sisters. And I, the producers involved, the cast directors involved. It's a lot of people involved that I'm a fan of their work. So. I reached out to casting and I said, I tried to find the best role I could possibly find for myself. And I can't play Ray Castro. I can't play Orphan Annie. I can't play the blonde hair guy, you know? So I saw Marsha P. Johnson and looking at the breakdown and looking up her, looking, looking her up and doing my research, I realized we look a lot alike. So <laughs> I decided to um, work on my voice, do more training and go in there and do the best I can. And once I did that, I got a call back, which was I was just excited to do a role, any type of opportunity to act. And when I got the call back, and this time Roland Emmerich was, was going to be in the room, and I realized to myself that this is, this is big. You know, even if I don't get this role, hopefully Roland can see something in me, and in the future he could cast me in something. And next thing you know, weeks go by, and I was offered the part, and from there my life has changed. I wonder if you remember the exact read or the line or maybe one of the lines um, when you when you read it for Roland that may have gotten you the part. Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, 
I don't remember anything exactly. I don't remember anything exactly. I I, I would think definitely. I, I this is what happened when I was when I was doing my casting. I realized because as casting, if you're looking at me now, they're looking at a screen, and then they're also looking at me in the room. So while I was doing it, my scene and I and I felt the energy of Roland looking at me, but then staring at the screen. And when he was staring at the screen, I realized I may have a chance because he's not looking at me out of courtesy. He's really looking to see what I could do on camera in a film making kind of way. And when I when I when I realized that, I felt this may go well. But I never and I never thought there'll be a chance where I could actually portray Marsha because again, she's an icon and someone like myself who is totally opposite on paper, but to the core, I was able to portray her and hopefully I did a Great job. I'm sure you did, and uh, you know, again, I think you're very kind, Michelle. I mean, I mean, if you if you Google my name with all the internet right now, you would think I you would think I did a terrible job, but I guess hopefully we'll see what can happen. But um, it's it's going to change. I hope for the better. You know, but it goes to show though that there are a lot more people who are out now who are aware of Stonewall, who are aware of what happened, and I think I, I you know we can't we let's not be upset about their oh. genuine like response, right? And yeah. I know that you're not, but but like like you said, give the film a chance. And yeah. um, I'm very glad to be speaking with you oh, yeah. um, because you know even talking about like Hollywood, you know Eddie Rain- Redmayne's you know yeah. latest hotly anticipated film, he plays a transgender woman, Jared Leto, won an award for playing a transgender woman. But we we really haven't had, uh, you know, a, a big representation of a transgender black woman. And so yes, yes. I, I, I feel that you and in this film is extremely important and having you on and talking about, you know, yes. the role and, and letting people know that Marsha is being represented correctly. Uh, you yes. know, we're very excited for it. Oh yeah, thank you, and and that's and that's what I felt when I was I was given the opportunity to do this. I realized, yes, I'm playing a transgender woman, but I'm also playing an icon, and also I'm playing someone in the black community outside the LGBT community. They may not be aware of her, and that's when I was very disappointed in the fact. Growing up, I'm from New York City. Marsha's from New Jersey. Spent a lot of time in New York City. Growing up, I never learned about her. In Black History Month, I learned about a lot of people at the time, but she, she she made a big stand in New York City. And for some reason, I never learned about her. And I was very, very disappointed by that because this is an icon and a hero. I mean, yes, maybe I'm a lot closer to her and I can defend her more. But I really feel that the Black community, the community of the world should know who Marsha P. Johnson is. And now with this film, if anything, if it raises questions and has people go on the Internet and type up her name, and see the amazing documentary, Pay It No Mind, then I guess that's a win. That's all I can really ask for because I hope her spirit will live on forever with the people that she knows. But now the people that may be curious hopefully lives on a lot more. You hit on something, you know, very important in which I, I wanted to ask anyway. I, I think that when people, um, you know, were upset about not having representation in that initial trailer of those who are involved with Stonewall, such as Marsha P. Johnson, it also it also struck like, you know, a, a racial chord, right? We're having yeah. these discussions within the LGBTQI community regarding yeah. race. And not even that. I mean, the, this country is talking about, you know, race and it's at an all time high. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts and your, your feelings about, uh, you know, the, the, the community feels this way and feels this has all these emotions regarding race within, you know, in, in, in maybe perhaps 
what do you think people will take away from the film after watching it and applying that to where our movement is at today? Yes, I, I think from the film, they're going to take away what Roland hopefully intended is the fact that out of the, out of the youth, homeless youth in the city, 40% are LGBTQI. And that's a big problem then. It's a big problem now. And he's highlighting the fact that a lot of homeless kids, they have nowhere to go and they have to survive. And that's what the film is basically focusing on. Most importantly, is the fact that there are people out there with no with no turn, and and because they may be in a time of their life where they're trying to figure out what it is, or they're not, they may not be accepted by many people. They're 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 trying to find a community, and luckily for them, the LGBTQI community is very is very embracing and bringing them in. And now for myself and Marsha, again, like I said, it goes deeper. We I can relate to her as a black as a black person. I can relate to her because there, the issue of LGBTQI equality is not there yet, but also in, in the world right now, the issue of black rights isn't there yet as well. So there's a lot of layers that I was able to um, get deep and ask questions to myself and to her from the heavens and realize that where, where we are, where were we back in 69 and where are we now? Has a lot changed? No, a lot hasn't changed, but on paper, people may think so. It's been a big year for LGBTQI community and rights, but there's a long way to go. And I think more importantly, a film like this celebrating and almost showing or asking the questions that people who may not know of Stonewall riots, it's only helpful for all of us. And and I guess like my follow-up question to that is if there was any validity to the concerns in terms of like the erasure of, you know, LGBTQI lives, trans lives, people of color. And if we need to be more inclusive, especially, you know, when we're making big films like Stonewall uh, with with a hotshot director like Roland Emmerich. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I think Roland, for even to take this on, again, this isn't a studio film. It's a Roland's film that he decided for himself. I want to tell the story. And it's for him to do that is 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 an honorable thing to tell the story for Stonewall Rice that he tried to get made for the past 10 years. It's been a long time. And other directors have tried to get it made as well, but they haven't. And Roland successfully has done that. And I think it's I think the fact that we're able to make a film like this is a big step in the right direction. And the problem is when you get criticism, people want to stay away from it. And, you know, you want to not not, you know, you don't want to get involved in some things that may be a hot subject, but we did it. We're proud of what we did. We stand by what we stand by what we did. And we hope that people could embrace it and see the reason why we made the film. We, we didn't make the film for a profit of the idea of let's tell a film about Stonewall and make a lot of money. No, we made a film to talk about the homeless youth and to talk about an important moment in history, LGBTQI history and the world's history and show that on screen. That's so beautiful, Toje. I, I, you know, I'm with Larry Kramer. I, I, oh, I think that we need yeah. to make sure that, yeah, you know, I mean, art is art and everybody's interpretation of, of, you know, art and history and all that. There, there's no one linear inclusive statement that we can make. You know, there's yeah. so many different interpretations. And that's the beauty of it. Somebody that's else can come back and make like another Stonewall film and we'll all be able to to uh, enjoy it but um yeah. and it's funny uh, yeah. to say that michelle because even when i was offered the role and i and i got on set you know ner- i'm nervous nervous of course because this is this is it you know this is it i mean you, you could do a casting for about 10 minutes or you could put in a tape and submit it for you know after five takes and hopefully you get the right scene but when i was on set i'm like this is i am marsha p johnson for the next two months and Knowing that, I, I had a conversation with John, John Robin Bates, and he told me specifically, he said, 
do not let the fear you may have debilitate you. And he was so honest and forth, forthright about it. He said the fact that you're playing Marsha P. Johnson, it's it's icon, but also look at look at it that you're first. There's gonna be a lot of marshes after you, which we see happening right now, but you're first and represent her in that way. Don't right. don't, don't don't try to mimic her or anything like that. Just be her and remember you're first. There's gonna be a lot of people after you, but you're first. And when he said that, I had a lot of pride because Marsha is an amazing woman and she's an amazing person. And I think literally if maybe in my career as it started to um grow a little bit. Maybe I would have a break 10 years from now. But without Marsha P. Johnson being in this world, I wouldn't be here embracing and happy for where I'm in my career right now. So I I mean, I, I owe everything to Marsha P. Johnson's character, her legacy, and the LGBTQI community for embracing the fact that they want to see her story. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that you stepped up to the plate and threw your name in there. So, Otoji, my last question for you is, um, you know, I I totally think this is going to spring you into the world of Hollywood and, and more roles and more films. And if not, you know, big accolades and, and honors, um, yes, yes. you know, in playing this role, uh, what's next for a Toje? Uh, what's next for a Toje? Said in the third person, look at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's next for me right now. I'm in a play downtown at the Lee theater. It's a wonderful theater downtown. It's an off Broadway play. We're in a play called Fulfillment. And it's an original work that's having its world premiere. We open September 21st. And it's going to be a tough week because September 21st is the opening of our play. And the 25th, Stonewall goes nationwide. And um, 20, 23rd, we'll have our LA premiere. So I'm going back and forth through the theater and then the film. And um, also, i written a screenplay that I'm trying to reach out to producers right now to hopefully see what can happen in a feature, a feature film. And just trying to create, basically, you know, um, this, I'm so happy with this opportunity because in New York City so far, you know, growing up, growing up and getting, you know, my, my foot wet, people are seeing me that I could do some things here and there. But the fact that Roller gave me this opportunity, they're seeing that I could do a lot more than they can imagine. So I'm happy that more than any, more than anything, people see this film and they'll judge it from when they see it. But hopefully, no matter what they do or feel, they just pay a lot of respect to Marsha P. Johnson because she deserves it. Oh, I love you. I love you. <laughs> when, when I'm out in New York, I'm definitely going to go catch uh, you oh, wherever please, you are. Please do. Please do. It, it'll, it'll be fun. And I, I just I just hope that people support everything that we're trying to do as artists. Forget about me. Forget about the play, the film. But art, artists, I mean, it's, it's a different life out there. A lot of people, and I know friends who are really talented that they decided to work a job because they they're afraid to go to the next level and there's, there's there's something with stability i get that but as artists we put our hearts out there we risk and um people should always remember that with artists they're they're risking a lot and they're taking chances and when you take chances that's when you get the most reward so fingers crossed my dear fingers crossed <laughs> otoje thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us today on thank the you. program and good luck thank with you. the premiere and i mean i definitely am going to go out and watch the film i hope so thank you michelle Perfect. Thank you, Otoje. Yeah, we got it. I know I talk a lot, but I'm sorry. But yeah. No, you. I love it when <laughs> you know artists get really into their craft, yes. um, and they participate with us. Because the hardest part is when like people are just like, "Yeah, it was a good film. I loved it." <laughs> and then I'm like, "All right." But you know what? And they they tell me with this film, you're almost better off doing that because they won't catch you saying anything you don't want to say. But you know, I, I really believe strongly about this film and Marsha. So I think I think and. 
I didn't put my foot in my mouth at all. So no, 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 no. I you're absolutely right. Look, any of us, if we actually had the opportunity to to do what you did, we would yes. all take it, and it's important yeah. to do that. I just think that very early on, people made some in you know comments, remarks, interpretations yeah. from that initial trailer. Yeah. Um, and and, then, so, they, they, and they have a right. They have a right yeah. to. I agree. It's just that see the film first, and right. And, you <laughs> know, it's, yeah. it's, it'll be a lot different. And yeah. I hope they just enjoy it. Well, thank you again, and thank and uh, stay in touch. I would love to. Thanks for reaching out. I'll, I'll send you an email right now with everything, everything that's going on. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, September 15th. We're halfway through this ninth month of the year, and I freaked out last night because there's only a few more months before this year ends, which would mean then I turn 34 next year. But uh, again, that's just my, that's just me freaking out. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. Glad to be here, Michelle. <laughs> uh, I'd like to extend, you know, many heartfelt thanks to Paul Henderson, who joined us and walked us through you know, the Kim Davis situation. It's very easy for us, especially those here on in this program and on the show, to not intellectually be able to say, Kim Davis, you're breaking the law. Uh, but I think he did a, a wonderful job, a great job explaining that, uh, you know, it, uh, what it comes down to here is we're not infringing on your right. To, you know, re- your religious belief here, but you're just plain breaking the law. That's right. Pretty clear. Yeah. Well, speaking of of the law and somebody we definitely don't want to break the law in front of is <laughs> our next guest, who is the current sheriff of San Francisco. And prior to being sheriff, he has served on the board of supervisors for San Francisco. And some of you may know him, especially if you're outside of San Francisco, as the supervisor who successfully led uh, legislation that, uh, you know, led to the ban of non-biodegradable plastic bags in supermarkets. Uh, Very, very, very progressive here in San Francisco. But today he's here to talk about a jail integration plan for trans women. So let's welcome Ross Mercurimi to the show. Ross, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I just mentioned, you know, a jail integration plan um, that actually has been announced uh, through, you know, various media outlets, uh, by the way. But transgender women in San Francisco's city county jails will now be able to access programs for other female in uh, for other female inmates and eventually will be housed with with female I- inmates if they wish to. 
uh, which is a plan that you had just unveiled. Let's talk about it. Uh, True. And along with your intro, I know I'm noted for when I was a city supervisor representing District 5 and banning plastic bags are first in the United States. A lot of my signature time was built on public safety and criminal justice reform as a member on the Board of Supervisors. And I carry those ideals forward with me in my capacity as the elected sheriff of the city and county of San Francisco. And really, philosophically, I I strongly believe that if we want to improve public safety, then we really have to do our best for our in-custody population so that they're able to rehabilitate and reenter back into society as effectively and meaningfully as possible. And I've always felt that our transgendered population in San Francisco jail, while I think we do it better than most in San Francisco, Overall, in the United States, um, the trans population is a very marginalized population on the streets of America. And I know that as sheriff, and I knew this even before coming in, think of how that marginalization is magnified inside prisons and jails. That's why I'm committing uh, these reforms, which I understand are some of the first in the United States. And I'm honored to see the press, like Time Magazine in New York, uh, the New York Times, and The Guardian from England, and et cetera. That's covering this story. I'd like to believe that this is the wave of the future, and I think it is. Now, so set the stage. The situation as it is now is that are all trans uh, inmates separate from the rest of the population? They're segregated, correct. And, and how did that come about? Was that requested by the inmates? Was that uh, something, were there abuses that were being addressed? I mean, why did that situation All come the about? above, but the... Um, the overriding motive is safety, safety for the inmates, safety for fellow inmates, safety for the staff. And I think it was just the reflex of the times that had uh, pursued for really decades mm-hmm. that in prisons and jails in this country, that transgender population, trans women or trans men would be segregated from the general population. Um, and there just wasn't, I think, the deep thinking uh, that is now, I think, emerging about what you do with this population instead of just disrespecting them while they're incarcerated. So the the goal then behind the new your your new plan is to integrate everybody out of that. Excuse me, everybody out of that, or uh, there. Oh, well, there's there a determination that certain determination. inmates better candidates for well, that. Well, one, I don't want to force anybody mm-hmm. to be somewhere that they don't want to be. So the option of staying in a segregated unit will always remain. 90% of the inmates that San Francisco has seen over the last 20 years, and we've looked at this um, thoroughly, Mm -hmm. is trans women uh, that come in, not at all frequent to see, um, or commonplace to see a trans man come in. But we develop protocols for trans women and developing protocols for trans men um, should they uh, elect to want to integrate into our women's jail, then they should benefit in the same way that our women's population does through the whole panoply of reentry and rehabilitation programming and ultimately it's housing. And I plan to make all that happen before 2016. Wow, Ross, that's that's huge. I mean, uh, you know, the conversation has been ongoing uh, throughout the country, really, when it comes to incarcerated trans inmates uh, and, and everything from like access to health care and also treatment of trans inmates uh, in this country has been talked about. Um, I'm wondering how the program and the integration also affects, you know, employees who, who are, you know, working in the jail system and if there's an education plan in place. I think we have some enlightened people in our uh, jail system, um, both from the deputy sheriffs and the civilian staff, but I, I won't 
um, sugarcoat this. I'm actually being sued. You know, there's litigation to try to slow me up or stop me from doing this. And I think there is uh, through a grievance process. Um, and there are transphobic people that work in law enforcement, as there are anywhere, I think, in society, as there are homophobic people, too. And I think that in an enclosed, incarcerated environment, you really see that come to life because it's just so um, palpable. And I've seen that, and that's why I'm not shying away from it. But I think we have to push further in order to break through. And frankly, I think it's a civil right. So what, what, how big is the population of trans Not, folks not in big in, in terms of the press that we've been getting. Sure. It, it doesn't live up to, but the average daily population is about seven or eight mm-hmm. uh, of people who identify themselves trans women or trans men, mostly trans women that is. Um, really on the high side, we've seen maybe a dozen uh, that are incarcerated. Um, rare if it gets beyond that. Our population today is six. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, were this, this and is this an issue of you can make this happen, or does this have to be approved by any courts or any? No, I, I'm the sheriff, and I have the capacity mm-hmm. to make it happen. I have to go through, uh, answer the grievance process. Part of my response to that, and the other answer to your question is education. We will train the inmates as well as our staff in concurrent uh, training uh, in order to understand one the reason, um, the benefit, and the pitfalls. Because again. Our overarching goal of maintaining, sustaining safety for everybody can never be compromised. And I don't want to misstep so that this, um, you know, really blows, implodes on us. So we have to be methodical about it. What we're unveiling in the next several weeks is there will be an integration of into women's programming. So the trans women will then be uh, from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. into the women's jail where they will be ferried every day and every evening to the women's jail, where they will integrate in the women's programming. And that's the warm-up uh, to then where we segue in several months into the housing integration. And we're enlisting, frankly, this couldn't happen if it wasn't for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, the Transgender Law Center, um, the Human Rights Commission in San Francisco. So we've been really working very closely joined at the hip with a number of partners from community experts right, in what we think is the right approach to this reform. And this has really been happening since I've taken over as sheriff. You mentioned uh, when you were first talking about this that it might be the first in the nation. Is it the first, or are there other countries that have have, have well, There's other countries. Um, as one always seems to recall Scandinavia, they seem to always be the most progressive at everything. Um, but there are, um, there are within Scandinavian countries, Germany, in some of their metropolitan areas yeah. as well, too. Um, in the United States, there's been a lot of chatter about this. As a matter of fact, I was two, over two years ago in Cook County in Chicago talking to the sheriff there who are contemplating or were contemplating, but they haven't taken the next steps mm-hmm. um, of what we're doing now. And I know the District of Columbia, I know Portland, Maine has been looking at this. Portland, Oregon has been making some gestures. And in Colorado, they've been looking at it. But as I understand it, in terms of total integration, um, as the press has um, replied to me, they, they say we're the first. Well, and, and then I assume that all those other cities, counties, and such that are considering this are really going to be watching closely what you do here and how it works out. 
Well, we're not, you know, it's true. They are. And reference to Michelle's comment earlier about health care, mm-hmm. we're also the first county jail system in the country to bring in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And when that was passed by Congress and protected after the Supreme Court's ruling, I, I wanted us to get to this um, sort of the punchline of what do you do for a, a prisoner jail population when so many people within prison and jail um, suffer from a substance abuse or substance misuse in their life or mental illness, but yet do not have the means for health insurance or access to health insurance when they get out. And everybody who gets out of uh, prisoner jail, 80% of that population, this has been known for years, 80% of that lives below the, below the poverty line. So they just don't have access. Mm-hmm. So before people are discharged, it's our goal to make sure that they have health insurance. Now we can't, you know, we can't force them to use it, but we're hoping that we motivate them to do so. But at least they'll have access to it. Well, it's just on the the mental health factor. I mean, that the the, the numbers of folks that I've read that that are who are in prison or jails who have mental health issues of one sort or another, it's a huge proportion of the population. It's a crisis. Right. I, I mean, and, I'll be and, honest with you. It's a crisis. It, San Francisco has uh, a number of milestones that we can trumpet. For example, we're one of the most undercrowded county jail systems in the United States. Really? Our capacity is 2,450. Our population today is under 1,300. But the mentally ill population is growing. Michelle Miao and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, our guest in studio, by the way. I didn't mention that. I always get really excited when we have an in-studio, in-studio <laughs> guest. is San Francisco Sheriff Ross Mercurimi, and we're talking about his trans jail integration program for trans women, uh, which I think, you know, if, uh, done well. I mean, it, it's got to be probably the most progressive integration program for trans women. And it's, you know, we're announcing it in, in an election year for you. And uh, my guess is that there are some people who are probably going to have some feelings feelings about this great program that I can't see uh, what what the opposing argument would be if somebody didn't support this program. So have you heard anything other than great things? Oh, not only what I've heard, I've seen written like in the San Francisco's Bay Area Report or the president of the Deputy Sheriff's Union, I thought was very overtly transphobic about their resistance to this. I mean, law enforcement culture can be a very inflexible mm-hmm culture, a real inflexible culture. Not that they're not well-meaning, but it really takes, um, you know, it really takes, I think, some leadership to advance. And while you do everything you can to bring everybody to the table to try to, you know, their fallback positions are often the kind of positions that has caused this criminal justice system to fail so miserably over the last 50 years. If we continue to listen to folks that resist these kind of endeavors, then we would be building many more prisons, many more jails. We'd be incarcerating people for substance abuse when we shouldn't be in the first place because of the failed war on drugs in this country. We'd be criminalizing poverty more than we do, criminalizing mental illness more than we do, and it would continue to take us in the wrong direction. And yes, you're right. Those are the very kind of themes that are coming out and will come out in my re-election and our election. We can't go backwards. Absolutely. John, do you have anything before we go on our break? Uh, Not for that, no. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Sheriff Ross Mercurimi. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into that last part that you mentioned (laughs) that he's uh, up for re-election. So don't go away. Ross Mercurimi and the rest of us will be right back.
You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And in studio is Sheriff Ross Marcarimi. He's the sheriff of San Francisco for those who are not in this uh, Bay Area. And right before the break, we were talking about his trans jail integration program for trans women, which would be, yes, the most progressive program, um, you know, if, uh, if I just am floored by the uh, opportunity just because um it hasn't it we've always been talking about inmates in the most negative way and i'm uh, i'm going to move from that conversation and i'm, I'm going to have john zipper here jump in and, and uh offer a question for ross sure well certainly a lot of our listeners who know anything about san francisco or have heard about Trent mercurimi they've been hearing a lot lately about the whole sanctuary city policy and and the uh, the tragic murder that took place here that has been linked to that policy by some. Um, and you've been kind of become a punching bag of some of the national politicians who oppose sanctuary cities. Um, also of some local politicians who have used you, I think, as the focus of, you know, what they say is wrong with the sanctuary city policy. So first, it, it, should the sanctuary city policy be changed? Is there anything in motion that, that, that uh, would affect, you know, your carrying out of anything related to it? What's, what's the current status? 
Well, there's been a lot of misinformation resulting from the Pier 14 tragedy, mm-hmm. um, resulting in the killing of Miss Steinley. But what that tragic killing has done is spotlight the schizophrenia between local immigration law, state, and federal laws. Um, and I thought that a lot of people, uh, ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement, and then Mayor Lee and Donald Trump were all too quick to point fingers without looking really at the uh, inconsistencies between local, state, and federal law, and nobody offering anything to do anything about it. And all along, um, me and my office has been communicating one way to Mayor Ed Lee, explaining to them our concerns about uh, immigration law and the feasibility of of implementing it. Um, a lot of people put the light on Sanctuary City. That's actually not the issue. Okay. Sanctuary cities were invented in the late 1980s and early 1990s in San Francisco and many cities around the country. Um, really, as a statement and as a governmental procedure to make immigrant uh, and undocumented populations feel welcome and really try to set up some protocols for undocumented people to live within our city's law-abiding. And, and it was tied, didn't it outgrow, excuse me, didn't it grow out of a lot of the, uh, the, the civil wars in Central America? That's correct. Specifically trying to provide. That's absolutely correct. It did, um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, it was after um, ICE uh, really became the principal um, administrator of immigration issues after 9-11 is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And then through their program known as Secure Communities, or also known as ESCOM, which seemed to be very reckless um, for about 10 years, um, deporting, um, incarcerating the wrong people. And that sort of bubbled up to the point where many city governments, including San Francisco, passed laws that prescribed how law enforcement should interact with ICE. So it was in 2013 that a law was passed by the Board of Supervisors, our city council, and enacted by the mayor, signed by the mayor, called Due Process for All. Mm-hmm. And Due Process for All was really the, the prescribing guideline of saying law enforcement, this is how you limit your contact with ICE. Um, it wasn't the most comprehensive law, but then several federal court decisions had um, been rendered between 2013 and 2014 and said ICE detainers are unlawful, that they're unconstitutional. And I take that to heart. And so when I met with President Obama's cabinet secretary, Jay Johnson, who's over ICE, he's Jay Johnson Homeland Security. He's in San Francisco Yesterday, today, that's right. Um, We um, told him that because of the laws that had been passed locally and what happened in federal law, we need a court order, a warrant, no problem. You can take, you know, if you need somebody, want somebody, but show us a court order or warrant. We adhere to all laws. But a detainer, meaning, hey, can you detain somebody for us? Uh, or notifying somebody, has been deemed unconstitutional. And this has become a real problem. And so the mayor or the board is, I mean, the Chronicle, they want us just to sort of repeal that. But I've been asking everybody said the mayor, let's go in front of the board and have a transparent, honest discussion about how do we reconcile the unconstitutionality of complying with a non-judge-ordered um, request from the federal government um, you know, and carrying out the spirit of the laws that we're passing here. The FBI doesn't get to do what ICE does. 
The CIA, if they were operating domestically, doesn't get to do what ICE does. The National Security Agency that Edward Snowden was exposing doesn't get to do what ICE does. They all are required to have a court order and a warrant uh, and when they are uh, administering their level of detention. So ICE seems to be above that, and that's where I've held my ground. Uh, and just going back to the fact that we pointed out this is a, uh, an election year, um, so you're looking to be reelected. I mean, this, all the, the press has really blown the whole sanctuary city thing out of proportion, and, and um, John Zipper had just mentioned that it, it, it did negatively impact you in, in this way. And so uh, my question is, you know, I mean, what are your feelings about the media blowing it up in, into this and that it, it having that adverse effect on you? Well, I'm no stranger to seeing that happen. Um, even coming to the office as sheriff, me and my family were very high profile in the turbulence that um, really er- revolved around and emanated from me, essentially. And um, the disproportionate sort of um, and, and pretty mean-spirited coverage, especially out of the Chronicle, um, was a real-life lesson was really telling. Um, but it was important for me and my family then and is in any of the initiatives that we've undertaken to just do our best to explain our position, try to enlist the wisdom of everybody around us and, and keep pushing forward. It's a, it's a place out of sincerity. It's not one out of arrogance. And it's one that looks for any kind of you know, middle ground but not in the case of law enforcement as results of Pair 14, where I want to associate myself with other politicians that profess to be supporters of Sanctuary City, and then hypocritically telling me to practice something else. And that's what's going on in San Francisco. Um, I think it's actually pretty cowardly of Mayor Lee and others to say, we support you know, Sanctuary City, we support undocumented, but they're telling the sheriff to cherry pick when we decide to call ICE and when not to. So my response in a three-page letter to the mayor right after um, the Steinle killing was telling him, again, let's, you and I go before the Board of Supervisors, our legislative body, and have an open and transparent discussion and in it, so that we can decide if we want to change local law. And if the board does that, no problem. I will adhere to all those. But as it stands now, I think the system is broken. And I'm making the best judgment call based on it. And you said earlier that you're having this one-sided conversation, if you will, with the mayor. Has he literally not responded? I've never met him in three years. He has not, he has not met with me. I've written him probably at least a 10 or 12 letters, maybe even a Hallmark card or two. I don't know. <laughs> I, but, can, but, I can confirm that, actually. He, mayor Adley did say that. Um, he was a guest on Michael Krasny's show, Forum, on KQED. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Michael Krasny, being Michael Krasny, couldn't believe it. You mean you don't talk to the, the sheriff? And, uh, you know, I think he offered a, uh, one of those uh, justifications of, well, we don't really need to talk. I, I disagree. I mean, I was a a two-term member of the Board of Supervisors, and I had my differences, you know, with Mayor Newsom uh, at the time, but we were able to always, and anybody, we don't always have consensus, and frankly, I think that that's the art of democracy, but you figure a way on how to keep moving it forward. I think there's a pettiness and a mean-spareness that's overcome City Hall because of the style of Room 200 that I've never seen before in my over 32 years of being in San Francisco. 
Okay, so you and the mayor are both up for re-election this, this well, November. Well, he's uncontested. Well, that's Except kind of, that's kind of what I'm opponents. getting to, is, yeah. is yeah. pretty sure that he's going to be re-elected. Yeah. If you're in an Alf Vicky Hennessy, your opponent were here, I would right. ask her, what does she hope to do if she gets elected? If you are re-elected, what would you want to do with the next four years? Well, I'm honored to have the support of my predecessor, Sheriff Mike Hennessy, and he's kind of the, in my opinion, the, the gold standard in, in this equation. He was elected eight consecutive times, sheriff 32 years, and known as one of the most progressive sheriffs in the country. When he knew he was going to retire, he tapped me to succeed him, and he still is with me in my reelection. And I vowed to build on everything that he started, and we've taken it to such new heights. Um, and that is really trying to improve people's lives so that they don't return back to jail, which ultimately the net effect is improving public safety. We've done that through our education system in the jails. Harvard has recognized us, the Kennedy School of Government, uh, in an Innovation Government Award, the only law enforcement in the agency. Uh, Governor Brown's prison secretary was out here, and he asked to inspect all 58 jails. And um, showing you all, but not the audience, it says, here's a newspaper cover inside of a model jail. And there's Governor Brown's secretary of prisons, uh, Jeffrey Baird, and me in the backdrop. Because of during state prisoner realignment, where the prisoners have returned right. from uh, the state prison's failed system to the 58 counties, we've defied all odds in showing how to manage that population to the point of successful reentry. But moving forward, let me tell you, we've got a changing city in San Francisco, and our criminal justice system needs to be agile enough to change with it. So I don't think that we should be criminalizing mental illness. As I was referencing earlier, you can see it in the streets of San Francisco. This city has no plan, none whatsoever, to deal with the escalating population of people suffering with mental illness and or substance abuse. And when you're building new hospitals these days, and five new hospitals being built and not a single one, the first time ever in the history of land use planning, at least in this scale, not required to have a psych bed that's part of the hospitals. And then you have shrinking amount of psych beds at the county hospital, San Francisco General. Where do you think they all go? Right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're now the default largest health, mental health institution right. in the city. Yeah. So I'm using the pulpit to speak out where I don't believe my opponents can do so because they're just proxies of Mayor Ed Lee since they have his support. And that would mean clashing potentially or calling attention to where the defects are with all this prosperity going on. Sheriffs do evictions. Well, we're the only sheriff's department in the state of California that has a creature called the Eviction Assistance Unit. Just two weeks ago, I told our deputies to stand down from evicting an 87-year-old lady because she didn't have anywhere else to Mm. bounce to. Adult Protective Services wasn't going to pick her up. Salvation Army of Goodwill was overwhelmed. The one senior shelter that the city has was not in a position to take her. So I said, stand down until we figure out what to do. There is no sheriff's department in the state that I know of, or maybe in the right. country, that's phone banking, that's looking for housing for people. Right. But when a court order for an eviction comes down, we're the agency of last resort. And I'm also trying to save taxpayers money because I just got our department credentialed in a very similar way that the SFPD is so that SFPD doesn't just have to walk beats. We can add to that and we can save people money because our deputies get paid less. So those are part of the innovations that I think is important to have an independent progressive sheriff um, build on what my predecessor has. 
I, I get the last question. I'm sorry, John. Uh, we're winding down on time, and I have sure. to ask it. I mean, again, you know, in, in, in having you here and talking about your politics and uh, your re-election campaign, it's it's obvious that how you feel and what what uh, what you're thinking aligns with me as a progressive and kind of what way I would vote. Uh, but again, I, this is a talk show program, so I'm not saying that careful. there's no endorsement yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. Um, however, with with some progressives, uh, you know, I've heard down the pipeline there, they, they seem to not be able to separate your personal life with your political career uh, and uh, have kind of put that in the same box, you know, the issue with your family, the domestic violence charges and, and whatnot. I, I think that, you know, if you could speak to some of those progressives who are unable to separate, you know, kind of your position regarding safety, regarding women or whatever it is, how you want to answer that, you don't have to go into great detail, um, uh, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in speaking to those people who are concerned, what would you say? Well, I, I would have loved if they'd seen my wife's play. This is a one woman show that just ended called What is the Scandal? Because um, while I certainly did a lot of talking and a lot of listening during all that turbulence, one person that they never asked was my wife, what she thought. And she is an accomplished actress, uh, was very successful in her native Venezuela, and put on this play, uh, one woman stage production called What is the Scandal? Because neither the press, frankly, or nor the community, who was doing a lot of talking on her behalf, but never ever asked her, I think it would have enlightened them if they come and listen to her. And I don't mind answering any questions about any of the lessons learned, you know, that me or my family went through. Um, and it has made us a stronger family and me a better man and, and, and frankly, a more effective sheriff. But bottom line is I'm the guy who presides over the industry of second chances. I didn't know that I might become a poster child for that. Mm. I didn't expect that to be, but I haven't shied away whatsoever from any of the mission objective of bettering people's lives, no matter what handicap politically they may see of me or personally. Um, I've still stood my ground moving forward and trying to advance the cause of both women, men, and transgender and others, you know, so that they benefit from a progressive sheriff no matter how uh, the deficits that people may see or deficiencies somebody or flaws may somebody see in me. I make a mistake, and what you do when you make a mistake is you really try to acknowledge it, improve upon that, and never make a mistake again and move forward. And frankly, it's kind of what our system is about, right? And hoping that people move forward with their lives, not to ever repeat again. Ross Mercurimi, everyone. Ross, thank you so much for joining us here on the program today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it. We have no uh, final thoughts, but maybe John and I will have a, a chance at doing that later on this week or, or next week. Don't forget, John hosts uh, Week to Week, that which happens this Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Tomorrow we'll be back at 4 o'clock Pacific Stan uh, Standard Time, and you can always reach us at michellemeow.com. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. 